I'm going to start by asking a question this morning. Um, how many words do you think you'll say today? If someone followed you around with a clipboard and just tallied up everything that came out of your mouth, what's that number? How many words do you think you'll say today? Do you have a number in your head, kind of a wild guess? Well, it turns out someone did do this, of course, because people do this kind of thing, and they followed people around with a clipboard, and they tallied up every word, and the number was about 16,000. And some people talk a lot more, and we call that the gift of gab. Some people talk a lot less, but average is about 16,000 words a day. That's kind of an incredible number. For a little perspective, a lot of our favorite books have about 90,000 words, which means since the last time we were together in this room last Sunday, each one of us has written a book, written a novel of words. We've said enough words to fill up a Hobbit or a Gulliver's Travels. This week, we've spoken an entire volume full of questions and answers, compliments, insults, mumbles, grumbles, blessings, curses, hopefully some prayers, maybe some profanity. This week, we've talked about mundane things and important things. We talk to each other and we talk about each other. We talk about ourselves, and let's face it, when we don't think anyone's listening, we talk to ourselves. This, one, this week, each one of us has written a novel-length manuscript filled with everything from small talk to deep conversation. We talk a lot, 16,000 words a day. So today, we're talking about words and asking the question, what does the Bible, specifically the book of Proverbs, have to say about what we have to say? So this idea of words, the concept of spoken words, is a huge theme throughout the entire gospel narrative, uh, starting in creation, through the fall, through redemption, all the way into eternity. At creation, we see the Bible's first spoken words, the first speaking part in the Bible, of course, belongs to God. Genesis 1, chapter 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God is speaking these powerful words. He speaks the universe into existence. Not long after that, the whole course of human history is sidetracked by a few more words when the serpent simply asks Eve a question. Did God really say that you can't eat from the tree? Followed by, you won't really die if you do. So at the very beginning of the story, we're not out of the book of Genesis yet. We see that words have power. Power to create stars, oceans, trees. Power to destroy people, relationships, civilizations. Later, as we continue to talk about just the idea of words, the power of words threaded throughout the Bible, a couple examples come to mind. The story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, God wants to scatter the nations. And so what he does is he changes their language. He makes them speak different languages. And that really says something about the power of words. That in order to confound their efforts, he confused their words. There's even a a, a kind of comical story in the the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, about God granting a donkey the ability to speak. He wants to get his message through to a particularly stubborn prophet, which kind of begs the question, how stubborn do you have to be for a donkey to call you out on it? In the life and ministry of Jesus, we continue to see words playing a central role. In John 1, Jesus' birth is announced like this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Satan has words for Jesus during Jesus' time on earth as he tempts him in the desert. He says, if you're the son of man, then just command these stones become bread. Even at the moment of our great rescue, as Jesus breathes his last on the cross, he chokes out three of the most important words ever spoken. It is finished. On into eternity, we're given the picture of the power of words. It says that every tongue will confess that he's God and that every living creature will say together in unison to him who sits on the throne, be praise and honor, glory and power. Words have power. Words are incredibly important. And the book of Proverbs is really this compilation of wisdom that tells us how to live this life. So many of the Proverbs teach us that wise living starts with wise speaking. Wise living starts with wise speaking. The significance of our words really can't be overstated. It's not enough to say they're important, they're crucial, they're vital, they're everything. If you think I'm exaggerating, read Proverbs 18.21 with me, which is kind of our key text for this morning. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The stakes don't get much higher than that. So whether they're spoken or written or typed or texted, words can do more harm or bring more healing than just about anything else we can do. The right words at the right time. They can be used to create, to instruct, to command, to promise, to forgive, to free, to bring life. But too often, we see and hear words that are used to destroy, to confuse, to tempt, to question, to trap, to condemn, to judge, to enslave, to bring death. The words we speak have the power to change the course of our entire lives. They can either echo Satan's chaotic and devastating vocabulary. Did God really say that? Maybe that's not what he meant. And, and if he really was God, then couldn't he just... Or they echo God's creating and redeeming vocabulary. Let there be light. It is finished. The ability to speak at all is a divine gift. It's a gift given to us by our galaxy-speaking creator as he created us in his image. Our ability to speak is so much more than letters and syllables and phonics and grammar. What we choose to say, how we choose to say it, is both deeply practical and deeply spiritual. Death and life. Death and life. These are extreme consequences for such a commonplace thing as speech. 16,000 words a day. And this proverb seems to be saying that death and life hang in the balance as each one leaves our mouth. Are you known as someone who speaks words of life or words of death? So let's first start by talking about words of death. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. He says there's literally nothing true about him, nothing true in him. If there's one thing that Satan loves to do, it is to lie, to spit deceit, to whisper half-truths and falsehoods. And look at the history of the world. 
His lies are powerful. It's an effective strategy. See, Satan wants to trick us into believing four lies about God. That God is not loving. God is not truthful. God is not righteous. God is not gracious. And all of these four fundamental lies are disguised and hidden within that first conversation the serpent had with Eve. That first lie, that God is not loving. By planting the seed of doubt, Satan wanted Eve to believe God was withholding his goodness from her. If he could just get her to believe that he was harsh, unloving, cruel, then his job would be done. The second lie, that God is not truthful. By casting doubt on his truthfulness, Satan wanted Eve to believe that God had lied to her. That question mark that he added to the end of what God said implies that God's word can't be trusted. He's out to destroy God's truthfulness. And Satan introduced rationalism. Whatever makes the most sense must be true. Pragmatism. Whatever works the best must be true. Relativism. Nothing is truly true. All these little divisive lies that are really based around who God is. And today's society has been scammed by these substitutes for the truth of God. The third lie is that God is not righteous. When he whispers, you shall not surely die, what he really wants Eve to believe is that God's not going to hold her sin against her. Some today think God is too good to really punish sin, but the reality is he's too good not to. He's holy and righteous. And our fourth lie that Satan wants us to believe about God is that he's not gracious. The temptation is to believe that God's plans are not for our good. We should take care of ourselves. Satan tells Eve, if God's not gracious, if he's not righteous, if he's not truthful, then you better become your own God and figure it out on your own. And these four lies, they're at the heart of hell's mission statement. If Satan can convince us of these things, he knows that they will appear and reappear in the things we do and the words we say. And the words we say are infectious and contagious. They spread like wildfire in our homes and neighborhoods and cities. Sadly, we don't have to stretch our imaginations too far to get a good idea of what words of death sound like. Many of us have some rattling around in our heads a sentence, a phrase, something spoken over us maybe long ago, a careless, poisonous word dreamed up by Satan, delivered by someone close to us, unwanted, disappointing, dirty, broken, not good enough, not worth it. Words of death. Proverbs 11.11 says, By the blessing of the upright a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. See, Satan's plan is to use our words as a means to bring devastation, decay, and death. To us, to those around us, to entire communities. Our words are his primary battlefield. And his key strategy and the strategy works because all of us have an enormous amount of trouble controlling what we say. Or as James calls it, taming the tongue. 
I'm going to read from James 3, picking up in chapter 2, or in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting, uh, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring for, uh, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let me change his course here a little bit. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I've always loved James' no-nonsense approach. To me, the whole book reads like the New Testament's book-matched mirror image of the book of Proverbs. He can be painfully blunt about all the ways we blow it every day, but he leaves us with the instruction and hope for living a new and different kind of life. So I want to unpack what he said. The first thing that James says is that someone who can use their tongue to speak perfectly, someone who never speaks words of death, is a perfect person. And he, he quickly goes on to say that that person doesn't exist, but his point is simply that controlling what we say is one of the most difficult things we can set out to do. That if we can tr- control our tongue, we can control everything else. And he paints some compelling word pictures. He says our tongues are like the bit in the mouth of a horse or the rudder on a huge boat. That even though it's a small part of us, it directs everything. What he's saying is that our lives go where our words go. That the entire course of life is altered by this tiny part of us. He continues with this idea of a small thing having a a huge impact, likening our tongue to a, a match that's lit sets a forest on fire, a tiny spark that causes unmeasurable destruction, grows and grows and grows. He says, we can tame a tiger or an elephant, but we can't seem to tame our own tongues. 
Many of you have, have met my dog, Eli. He's a 100-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback. On the picture on the left, that's my wife's hand next to his, just for a little scale and perspective. If you're not familiar with the Rhodesian Ridgeback, the breed is also called a lion hound, as in, let's breed a dog that will help us hunt lions. So he's a big dog. He's one of those dogs that can comfortably rest his chin on the dining room table. And uh, more than one time we have been recommended, you know, to put a saddle on him and let our kids ride around the house. So. But when I snap my finger and I point, he kind of shrugs and does one of those, hmm. gets into his cage, curls up like a little baby. This enormous animal with huge teeth and giant paws, he just walks around our house all day bugging our kids, let him, letting them tell him what to do, eating the crumbs that surround the table of a family with four young kids, Cheerios, SpaghettiOs, Oreos, you name it. If it ends with O, it's going to be at our house. We're kind of connoisseurs, if you will. He's this massive animal, and he does what we tell him to do. Goes where we tell him to go. If I tell him to shake my hand, he shakes my hand. We can train wild beasts to do our bidding. We've got monkeys doing sign language. We've got elephants doing watercolors. And if that's not enough, I once saw a brown bear do a choreographed dance to jock jams at the Wood County Fair. <laughs> that's a true story. Half of you think I made that up. The other half saw it with their own eyes. And they are also reliving the trauma this is true. We, we were walking past this little stage area. We didn't really know what it was. There's a sign that says, so-and-so's family circus. Hmm. That could be fun, something for the kids. A little whimsical. Whimsical it was not. <laughs> a couple minutes later, a less-than-credentialed gentleman came out and pressed play on the boombox. Three black bears come out of the trailer. Brown bears, I'm sorry. In matching costumes. Y'all ready for this? To which I replied, No. I was not ready for this. I was officially not ready for this. We're not talking Cirque du Soleil here. This was the Wood County Fair, and the bears were not enjoying themselves. Let's just say that. Lily was maybe two years old at the time. She starts crying. And a lot of times you want to teach your kids to be brave, you know? You say, oh, it's fine. There's nothing to worry about. No, this time I was like, yeah, have a good cry. That's weird. I'm sorry you had to see that. The point is we can train animals to do whatever we want. Beasts that walk, swim, fly. But our tongue? No, oh, sometimes my tongue feels like it says whatever it wants without even asking me. James says our tongue is filled with deadly poison. It can be venomous. That we use our tongue to praise God and we use our tongue to gossip about God's children. He keeps underlying and highlighting all the different ways that Satan wants to use our words as instruments of death. And then he, he does change gears and he leaves us with a vision of something else. Words of life, finally. What do words of life sound like? The meek, 
quiet, pure. They bring peace. They're ready to listen and consider others, even those they disagree with. They're merciful, fair, genuine. That last word, genuine, sincerity, transparency, it's a big deal these days. Authenticity is kind of in right now. If you turn on the TV and watch a couple commercials, it's not going to be long before you get this notion that every brand really wants to be seen as real, as authentic. Because authenticity is something that we crave, and, and don't get me wrong, it's a good thing in and of itself. But just like any good thing, it's something that Satan can warp if we give him the chance. And so we can easily become these quote-unquote genuine people. And what that really means is we just flippantly say whatever we think, and we justify it by saying, I'm just being real with you. This is just me. I'm just being transparent. So being genuine, being transparent really only works when it sits next to those other qualities, being peaceful, being gentle, impartial. Satan wants nothing more than to use our careless words to bring death, confusion, pain. But we were designed, created, called to be life givers to those around us. Words are one of the most important and powerful ways that we can do just that. Here are a few other quick lines from the book of Proverbs about words of life. The tongue of the wise brings healing. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul, health to the body. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs, we have instruction on how to speak. How to speak like we were designed to speak. Words that echo, let there be light. It is finished. Words that create and don't destroy. Words that redeem and don't corrupt. You'll notice that Proverbs also says a lot more about how to not speak than it does about exactly what to say. It goes so far as to say that even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. There's this refreshingly practical sense in which Proverbs is filling us in on this idea that sometimes, maybe even most of the time, not speaking is the way to bring life to a moment, to a relationship. That even if something feels true, even if something is actually true, sometimes that's not enough to make it worth saying. That we're to be people who ponder our responses, measure our words, use them sparingly. We're reminded, be slow to talk, be quick to listen, to ponder, to measure our words. In Proverbs, we see two kinds of speech that are consistently compared There's this reactive speech, and there's a proactive speech. Reactive speech, it's hurtful to those who hear it. It's a nasty reaction. It's kind of like firing from the hip. A hasty answer, a clever point, a rash judgment. Proactive speech is a gift to those who hear it. It's a heartfelt text. It's a specific word of encouragement. It's a slow, gentle response that doesn't claim to have all the answers. 
Speaking reactively is, is kind of like living paycheck to paycheck. You go to bed at night thinking, what did I even say today? Where did all my words go? And speaking proactively is like living with a well-planned budget. You wake up in the morning knowing exactly where you want to invest your words, knowing that life comes back to those who speak life and death comes back to those who speak death. Back in Proverbs 18.21, we heard death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the second piece of that verse is that those who love it will eat its fruits. Those who love it will eat its fruits. What this means is that the way you use your words will affect you just as much as it affects the people that hear them. James agrees at the end of uh, that chapter 3 when he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, words of death bring death to the one who speaks them as well as the one who hears them. And likewise, words of life bring life to the one who speaks them. We see all of these proverbs, all of these patterns of speaking lived out perfectly in our ultimate example of Jesus. Meek, quiet, pure. His words brought peace. He listened carefully to others. He was merciful, fair, genuine. There were moments where he taught and it was the perfect time to teach. There were moments when he said nothing. It was the perfect time to be silent. There were moments where he called people out, called people higher. Always the right words at the right time. In John 6, he says that the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is full of words of life. He longs to replace the words of death that are stuck in our heads with truths about who we are in him. Truly known, worth dying for, restored, forgiven, beloved. So what can we do? What steps can we take to be people who are known for speaking words of life? I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge how much it matters. When it doesn't feel like a matter of life and death, we need to trust the word of God and allow the gravity of our speech to be felt. When we truly understand the devastating power of careless words and the life-giving power of Christ-like words, we can see every mundane moment is really an opportunity. Our words are harder harder to control than a fierce animal. Our words can be deadly as poison. The damage they cause spreads like wildfire. That's a shocking picture, the power of our words. It should really force us to take an inventory of the things we're saying. We need to pick up that book that we've written in the last week and read it, examine it, critique it. If you're anything like me, you'll find two things to be true. I said some things this week that I truly wish I wouldn't have said. And I neglected to say some things that would have brought life to those around me. So so what I want to do this week as a community is something very practical, very tangible. I want to invite you to write two things down at the end of every day. Two phrases, two sentences. Write them in a journal on a sticky note. Write a quick email to yourself. 
the first thing I want you to write down is something that you said that brought death. Something reactive, something proud, something defensive. Something that hurt the person who heard it, even if you were the only person who heard it. Write that phrase down word for word. There's something about seeing it. There's something about giving shape to our words that helps us feel the gravity and the weight and the importance of them. And and it can even help us track down where those words came from in the first place. See, our words have this tendency to escape our mouths and then escape our memory. We misremember what we say, we justify what we say, but if we take that word of death and we write it on a piece of paper and we look at it, teaches us a lot about where our words are coming from and what the motivation is behind them. The second thing I want you to write down is something you plan on saying the next day. Something that will bring life. This is budgeting your words. This is planning them out. Take time to imagine tomorrow. Who are you going to cross paths with? Who needs to be lifted up, encouraged, thanked, or just simply heard? I want to close this morning by sharing a story with you, really a testimony to the power of words in my life, in my family's life. It was a few months ago. We were in a really painful spot. Without getting into a lot of the details, I can honestly say I can't remember a lower point in my life. A lot of confusion, a lot of questions, a lot of fear. Bethany and I were up late at a friend's house getting prayer, getting counsel, looking for answers, and I, I half-jokingly threw up my hands. I don't know if you've ever said something like this. Can't, can't God just, like, talk to us? He loves us. He knows what's true. He knows what we should do next. Can't he just show up and say something? A few minutes after my little rant, my phone buzzed on the table in front of me, and I ignored it. We kept talking. We kept praying. About an hour later, we got up to leave to come home, and I, I checked my phone. It was a text from an old friend of mine, Kevin, who had moved across the countries years ago. The kind of friend you see every few years, and you, you stay connected to here and there. Me and Kevin hadn't spoken in at least a year. No email, no text, no nothing. So when I read the text that he sent that night, my jaw dropped. I started laughing and crying and praising God. Kevin didn't know anything about our situation. In fact, the people in that room were the only people that knew what was going on with us. And in this moment of despair, I get this text message. It was only three words. It said, hope will rise. What? Words of life. It didn't have a clear answer for us. It didn't have a next step for us. But it had life. So much life. It had exactly the words that my family needed. I showed Bethany my phone and her response was exactly the same. Tears, laughter, this wave of peace. We couldn't believe it. We were up late that night wiping happy tears from our eyes as we read and reread this three-word text. 
I remember telling Bethany, I think Jesus just texted us. <laughs> and I kind of meant it. It was nothing short of a miracle. All I could manage to reply to my friend that night was, I, I don't know where that came from, but those three words are everything to us right now. Thank you. For the next few weeks, Bethany and I would randomly look at each other and just say, hope will rise. We'd text each other throughout the day, just those three words, hope will rise. And it was enough. It was just enough light in a very dark place. Eventually, I, I told my friend, our, our part of the story, sitting in the room, calling out to God and, and our phone buzzing. And what was going on? What, where did that come from? He said, I, I don't really know. I was, I was on a long car ride. I was worshiping. I had this song on repeat. And I just remember you telling me how much you liked it. I, f I felt like sending the lyrics to you. Kevin probably said 16,000 words that day. And with only three words, he brought clarity and calm into our chaos. These three words were God-breathed, worship-inspired. He typed them into his phone, beamed them across the planet, not knowing the forest fire of hope that little spark would cause for the Jenkins family. Let there be light. These are words of life, and these are words I'll never forget. Words are everywhere. Words of life are rare. More than ever before, we're inundated with concepts, ideas, stories, opinions. And as ministers of the gospel, we need to be clued in to the power of words and in tune with the way that God designed us to use them. Our homes hang in the balance our city hangs in the balance. Our very lives hang in the balance. Will you stand and pray with me? As a worship team. God, we acknowledge you as our creator, as the giver of all life, and the speaker of all truth. God, we confess that the words that come from our mouth so often are lies born of our own sin. We need you desperately by your spirit to help us be people who control what we say, that invest our words in, instead of squander them. God, help us to feel the weight of what we say, what we text. Let every word that comes out of our life be a word that is born of your mercy and your grace and your love. We want to be a people who is known for speaking words of life. We ask you to change us and to show us the way. We thank you for the words of life you have spoken over us, that you have called us new, redeemed, forgiven, child. We worship you this morning because you're a God of truth and a God of life.